And welcome to the broadcast. If you're new, my name is Jim Paris. My website is ChristianMoney.com. And we talk about everything, not just money and not just necessarily Christian or spiritual slash religious topics. We're kind of across the board. And tonight we've got a great show lined up for you in our first uh, segment here. Our new segment, we're going to be talking about the Derek Chauvin verdict. And it's very interesting to watch some of the polls this week to see how many people agreed or disagreed with the verdict. That's going to be our first segment. And then in our guest segment tonight, we've got Dr. Gary Habermas, the case for the resurrection of Jesus. And this might look familiar to you only because on Easter, we did a special broadcast and we had a replay from five or six years ago with our last interview with Dr. Habermas. Uh, the audio quality was not good because it was a copy of a copy uh, from when I was back on the radio network. And so we're going to do that interview again tonight. And I've got some fresh and updated questions as we talk about Jesus Christ, the historical figure, who he was and what proof there is that he was resurrected from the dead. And 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 I love this discussion because there is so much there in history. Before we get into tonight's uh, opening topic here, just a quick mention. Our sponsor tonight is Internet Paycheck for Life. Dot com. I keep talking about it. For those of you that want to start an online business, check it out. There's some free content there. There's also a trial uh, membership. You can check this out. Kick the tires. Check it out tonight. Keeping us commercial free. Tonight's sponsor, Internet Paycheck for Life. Dot com. All right, we welcome uh, back to the program. He's a regular caller. His name is Jeremy, and he is a Chicago area attorney. And I wanted to bring him on. I emailed him a few days ago, and I said, hey, can you and I just chew the fat and talk about the Derek Chauvin verdict? And he said, sure. And so he's with us tonight. Uh, Jeremy, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Thanks. All right, good to have you with us. I'm going to turn up your volume just a little bit there um all right let me start jeremy by tell, giving you kind of my thoughts on it now i uh, did not watch much of the trial at all i saw some of the clips you know when you have some time at night and you're watching the news they kind of replay some of the highlights i did that but i didn't really watch the whole trial but you know right. in in my view if if i were a juror just based on what i did see I was leaning towards that Chauvin was guilty of probably the lowest of the three charges. And and what I mean by that is this. I thought that he was sort of the, I, I hate to use the term, but, you know, stereotypical government worker. He looked like he was following some protocol with the knees pinning the guy down like he had been 
through some training or seminar. But when you looked at how long he was holding the guy down, eight minutes and 46 seconds, I believe it was, that was just too long for me with the guy yelling, I can't breathe for almost nine minutes. Now, obviously, perfect storm, right? The ambulance could have come more quickly. Other things could have happened. Uh, George Floyd maybe didn't uh, resist arrest earlier on, which sort of put, you know, put them in that that situation. But I, I am critical of police who I believe are trained. You know, I'm a third degree Taekwondo black belt. That doesn't mean everybody has the skills that I do. But when you have a man in handcuffs and there's four against one or five against one, to me, to hold him down that long, I, I just saw this look in Chauvin's eyes on that video of apathy. Like, okay, this guy just can't breathe. But But here's the other part of it I have a problem with. I don't buy into the fact that he's guilty of like a second degree murder charge or anything crazy like that. Like this guy decided he was going to kill uh, George Floyd. I don't buy into that at all. And I also didn't see anything racist about the whole interaction. You know, that's sort of the, the overarching narrative is that this was because of racism. I honestly think if I were the guy pinned down, I would have been pinned down for eight minutes and 46 seconds. I don't think it had anything to do with race. That's just my opinion. I would have said guilty on the lowest of those three charges, uh, which I believe was was a third degree murder charge, which might have been similar to like manslaughter. Uh, what say you, sir? So when you look at criminal cases and the stat, if you actually look at the statutes that he was charged under, yeah, you're going to see that the, um, the third degree murder, the second degree murder charge, the difference between those and the manslaughter charge, second degree manla- manslaughter, is it all boils down to intent. Um, and obviously intent in criminal law. Uh, I, I've taught uh, a lot of college classes, law classes, um, and I always explain to my students, in criminal law, you have to, the, the basis is you have to have two, you know, definite, uh, pieces of evidence to prove your case as a prosecutor. One, uh, there has to be the, the act, but then you also have to have the uh, what they call the culpable mens rea, the, the, the guilty mind. And the guilty mind goes towards saying, did the person who committed the act, did they have that mindset? Did they have that uh, intent, that guilty mindset, uh, along with committing the actual act? And I, I find it challenging to say that um, he had the, the, the intent, the guilty mind on these. Um, I, I tend to agree with you. I think with the manslaughter charge, which then goes to a legal standard of negligence. Um, negligence is you know, a lower standard. Negligence is something you usually see in a, a civil case where you're you know, suing for, for monetary damages. Um, in the negligence situation, where is essentially where you know he, he could have been found or he was found guilty, and, and I could see this where he made uh, an unreasonable um, action here. Uh, you know, obviously keeping his knee on his back, on his neck for uh, that long amount of time. Yeah, I could see that being definitely unreasonable. I could see that being a negligent standard. Um, but I think it, I find it very problematic to say that uh, he was guilty of all three, especially when the first two 
the, the murder charges have to show that he intended to, you know, not that he just did the act, but he intended to inflict the damages that occurred. And I, I don't see how that could have been found um, beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, let me ask you about this idea of the three charges, because if people weren't following this too closely, it was sort of an 11th hour uh, idea that they were going to bring in the third degree murder. And that, to me, kind of showed their their cards that even the prosecutors were worried they weren't going to get uh, the higher charges. So they were going for that that third degree uh, charge. But how do you as a jury find guilty for all three? Uh, Because if I understand that these are three separate and unique crimes, these are not what in in the law we call lesser included so that uh, that that you could be guilty of all three, all three, just giving a, a guilty on all three. Does that even make logical sense to be guilty on all three? Not necessarily. Um, I used to be a prosecutor many years ago, and I would tell you that, you know, if, if a defendant came into the courtroom or their, their attorney came in and say someone had um, charges that were uh, felony level charges and then they had misdemeanors uh, behind them. So say someone got pulled over for, um, you know, uh, drunk driving. Uh, and then as the officer was, uh, conducting, you know, field sobriety tests or searching the vehicle, found uh, immense levels of, of drugs in the, within the vehicle that brought it up to a felony level charge. As a prosecutor, I would, uh, when I plea negotiate with the defendant, I would say, you know what, I'm going to dismiss the, uh, you know, uh, broken taillight or the failure to use a turn signal or the speeding charge that, you know, had them pulled over in the first place. I'm just going to go after the felony charge because that's the one with the highest penalty, the one with the highest amount of, um, you know, sentencing that could occur. Uh, so, yeah, I would usually dismiss those. Uh, the other thing is, in criminal law, uh, when you, you know, you have to think of criminal law kind of like a, a ladder or a pyramid. Um, you know, you start at the lowest level with like an assault and battery, uh, and then you work your way up to, you know, the highest would be, the murder charge um what you what you've usually found is if you're going to convict someone under a murder charge you have you have to have to show the actual intent like we talked about before but also when you get to that murder charge you've kind of covered all the lesser crimes underneath it so it's not like you say oh we found someone guilty for murder now we have to go back down and say well did they commit a battery also well, the battery is inferred into the right. That's charge. what they call a lesser included. And that's why I'm saying it's like if you say he's guilty of the top charge, why do you need to say he's guilty of the second and third, the you know, the lower charges? And the reason I ask that is it almost plays into this idea of the jury being intimidated and throwing the kitchen sink 
uh, you know, here basically saying, okay, yeah, you want Barabbas? We'll give you Barabbas. I mean, to use the, you know, the Christian uh, metaphor, the idea that, uh, look, uh, we're the jurors and these people are, you know, circling around the courthouse by the thousands. Uh, we're just going to vote guilty on everything just to get out of here uh, and not have any risk. Does that sort of feed into that uh, narrative of the yeah. jurors feeling intimidated? Absolutely. I'm troubled. You know, I'm going to put uh, all ideas of race aside. I'm going to say this with complete, you know, uh, honesty here to say whether the, um, you know, the whether the defendant was white, black, red, green, you know, you name it. The thing that concerns me here about this case, the the court of law. If you you know you know the the symbol of of, of uh, the court of law of, of justice. It's supposed to be. Uh, the female with their uh, blindfold on and holding the scales, and the scales are balanced. Justice is blind. We're seeking, you know, to make things balanced, to make things equal. Uh, in court, you're supposed to do the best you can to bring things back to where it would have been if the offense had never occurred. Um, obviously, you know, that in a criminal case, that's near, obviously almost impossible. Um, but... The concern I have here is, is this justice? You know, you'll hear, of course, on the media and everywhere they're saying, well, this is justice. I'm troubled by that. I don't, I can't say as an attorney and putting all the emotional part aside, I don't see this as justice. I, the only justice I'm seeing here is like a mob mentality justice. Is that because you don't, saying, you didn't see any possible way that this guy, number one, could have been presumed innocent going into a trial. And secondly, that there was any possible way that those jurors were going to vote anything but guilty. It was almost like you could see, I don't know how many street fights you've seen where you see someone, they clench their fists and they posture just before they, they throw a punch. It's almost like that was the scene metaphorically of what was happening with that crowd that was building outside the courthouse and not just in Minneapolis, but we were also told that similar crowds were building nationwide uh, terms like they're going to burn down the city. Those kinds of things were being said, and it was literally posturing that we better get this verdict that we want. And if not, they'll be held to pay. Right. Yeah, and that's the mob mentality justice that I'm concerned that this is setting a precedent for that. Um, is it, you know, again, is that what our court systems were intended for? No, uh, we're supposed to seek justice. And uh, if your justice is, well, like you said, someone has to be the Barabbas. Someone has to take the fall so that we don't have cities burning again and we don't have, uh, you know, issues in Minneapolis and uh, St. Paul area where there's going to be complete destruction of those areas. We need to have this so that we can placate those who are going to want, you know, wanton destruction of an area because they didn't get the verdict that they wanted. That's not justice. That's mob mentality. And that's disturbing to see something like that in a court of law. Let me ask you about this whole issue of, of, of an appeal. I've read articles that have said there's no way 
that Derek Chauvin is going to get an appeal because this case is just too high charged and all of that. But then you see Alan Dershowitz saying, no, no, this case is going to go on appeal. And not only is it going to be uh, successfully, uh, is is the appeal going to be heard? Uh, the, <laughs> the case will be reversed. There'll have to be a new trial. And um, they're pointing to uh, some specific things. One is this $27 million civil settlement that came just the days before the trial basically the city conceded and said hey we're going to pay this i mean 27 million dollars we're going to pay out in a civil uh settlement then you have uh you know, politicians, Maxine Waters travels into Minneapolis, uh, makes some inflammatory statements. Then the judge says, because of Maxine Waters' comments, this case could actually be appealable. How often does a judge actually in the trial? Um, may, now, I think that was outside of the the earshot of the jury, but at the same time, it was on the record that the judge himself said, uh, wow, this case could be appealed because of what's happening with Maxine Waters and other politicians making public statements. It almost seems like he was just planting the seed right there for the appeal. The issue with the appeal, I mean, one of the appeals that could happen is, is still yet to be determined, and it's going to be based on the sentence that is handed down. Um, there's, you know, statutes in Minnesota indicating, you know, what a, uh, a reasonable sentence is going to is going to be for this type of conviction. But so if the if the sentence is uh, too large, and this is going to be based on the judge uh, making that determination. You could get an appeal on that. The appeal based on all of the information going on, you know, in the media and in the public. I mean, Maxine Waters, yeah, should have kept it to herself if she's supposed to be a public servant and a representative of the people. Um, but if the jury did not hear any of this, if the jury did was not swayed in any of that, that's going to take that out of the equation. Um, jurors are supposed to be fair and impartial. Uh, when you pick jurors for a jury trial, it can be sometimes the most difficult part of the trial because you're trying to find someone who can say, yeah, they can decide this case and they don't have some uh, personal uh, you know, bias or vendetta against the defendant. That can be difficult to find. Um, you know, how could you find, how could you find jurors in a case like this that, you know, in the past year, it's been almost every other minute you turn on the news and this is what's on the news. How are you going to find jurors who can actually say that they would be, you know, fair and impartial and not have some bias on a situation like this? But they did. They, they do you think, the uh, jurors, you know, Jeremy, do you think change of venue was warranted? Uh, in, I mean, if there was ever yeah. an argument to be made for change of venue, if if only, for example, just to get away from Minneapolis, where these crowds were, even if it was to like a more rural location in Minnesota, not to say that crowds might not have relocated to there. Uh, but but boy, to, to have this in Minneapolis. Uh, seem to be really egregious in, in terms of, of a venue. I agree. Um, to have, you know, to have the case, uh, this high profile of a case in the venue where this occurred and then where you had rioting and all the damage last year, to have that 
uh, they sh there should have been a, a more aggressive argument for change of venue. Um, and I, I think it should have been granted. Now, the question again would be, where would you have, where would you change the venue to on a case of this level? Right. Um, because, <laughs> over, know, it, maybe over it, the it, Canadian border. <laughs> I, I mean, even that. yeah, I'm just, I'm just teasing, but you're right. I mean, it would still have to be somewhere in Minnesota. You, you mentioned uh, sentencing and uh, you know, we live in a world where, you know, here locally um, I'll follow certain cases here in Florida and just be shocked, flabbergasted at how little time that people are actually sentenced to for very serious right. crimes. And then it, it, when it actually plays itself out, how they're able to get released earlier than, uh, you know, a lot of cases here in Florida are just uh, dispensed of as like probation, like no time. We'll just give you like 10 years right. of, of probation, um, especially when it's a first time offender. Somebody who has no criminal record like Chauvin does not right. have, you know, being that, you know, he's a police officer and all that. Um, does do, do the way do the scales of justice sort of. Uh, do they do they weigh in against him because this is such a public case um, like you were talking about a minute ago or or I mean, what kind of a, a sentence could he get if, if this was, you know, if his name was was Joe Smith and this was something that wasn't in the news and it was just sort of a, you know, police officer who, who did this uh, and and it wasn't covered nationally and all of that. I mean, is this something where like, I don't know, five to seven years, he's like a free man walking around? So uh, the, in, the things that are in his favor, like you said, one, uh, obviously no prior record. Uh, he's a police officer. Um, so that helps him. But uh, in a normal case, in a normal situation without all the different variables, um, I would say, yeah, someone would be expecting in a scenario like this probably get somewhere around eight to 10 years. Um, that would be considered reasonable in a case like this. However, the statute allows for the judge, again, the, the judge who's going to do the sentencing, he uh, he's on the hot seat right he, Yeah, now. he's in the worst um, because, part of all because it almost seems like no matter what yeah. sentence he gives him, the crowd is not going to be happy. Right. I mean, you can't, he's convicted of all three charges to say, well, we're gonna, going to give um, you know, sentences on all three, add them up, uh, you know, to push it up to like 80 years of, uh, you know, 80 year prison time. Um, yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, although I'm sure there are many who would think that that would be, uh, justified. But like I you know, said before, I think that would warrant an appeal. Um, I think in a, yep, a case where it's not so controversial and not so much emotions attached to it. Eight to ten years, no doubt about it. I'm thinking they're going to probably sentence him to somewhere around twenty. The, the again, this is where it goes outside of the realm of you know true justice. Is the only way you can sentence someone under the statute, you know, beyond what would be considered reasonable, is you have to show like some exigent circumstances. So the, already the prosecutors are arguing, while there were children around when they watched this occur. And of course, Derek Chauvin's a police officer, so he's a, in a position of authority. So because of those things, they're going to argue, they're already arguing 
there's some exigent circumstances, and we want this sentence to be higher than what is ordinary. Um, and uh, sadly, yeah, the, the judge will allow that. Um, I don't think it's, I don't think that's justice. I don't think. But that's something you had said that that can be appealed also. So the trial itself could be appealed to be reversed and have to have a new trial reversed and remanded as it as it's called for a new trial. Um, You could have uh, the, the, the case itself stands, but the sentencing is challenged and that could be. Uh, reduced through an appeal. Um, what about uh, exactly. what happens to a police officer in prison? What I understand to be the case is that he's presently being held in solitary confinement, which is probably by his own choosing, I'm assuming, because not only this particular crime and all of the people angry at Derek Chauvin that would be in prison, but also the fact that he was a police officer on top of it, high profile person, former police officer, and then a crime like this that is put within the you know narrative of racist. Um, he would not last long, probably in a general population. Does this mean that the entire sentence he lives out in, in a small cell 23 hours a day, one hour outside for for exercise? Or is there a a place they put police officers that has let has a little bit more freedom than than solitary confinement? I don't think for any uh, immediate time being. Yeah, I don't think he'll be allowed to be amongst the you know general prison population. I think it'll be solitary confinement for a significant amount of time. Um, and then perhaps when, you know, things blow over and, you know, people hopefully move on with their lives and start to heal and, uh, you know, maybe uh, some of these memories can pass on, then he might be moved into a general population when he's much older. Um, but no, I don't you know the one that he's an officer that's already challenging for putting him amongst the general prison population. But a case, to, a case of this level, I don't see. Yeah, uh, he, there was no way that he they could guarantee his safety uh, with this high caliber of a case. And in any case, when Derek Chauvin gets out of jail, if that's in ten years from now or twenty years from now, his life is over. I mean, his life right. is over. He's always going to. I mean, when you have you know uh, even the president of the United States weighing in saying that you were guilty. I mean, regardless of what happened, I mean, his, his life is over. I mean, he has, he's a marked man for the rest of his days, uh, regardless of where he's at and his wife has divorced him and his career is over as a police officer. Uh, so, you know, the punishment is coming, uh, regardless in one form or another. Now, what happens to the other three, defendants. So what a lot of people didn't see is that it wasn't just Derek Chauvin. He was the one visible just beyond the bumper of the vehicle. But there was actually, was it two or three other police officers that were also pinning down with their knees on different parts of of George Floyd's body, waiting for the ambulance to arrive. But they're not visible in that famous cell phone video. These other three are awaiting trial. 
Um, is this like a, uh, an automatic deal? Like, well, Chauvin was guilty, so they're also guilty. The facts are fairly the same. The position on the body might be different, but otherwise everything's the same. They're all going to be guilty also, or is that oversimplifying it? Uh, I don't see them find, you know, uh, this is obviously not going to go in their favor. Um, I don't think it's, uh, the the one thing is Derek Chauvin's the def, definitely the most visible of the of the officers uh, to essentially have to take the fall on this one. He's the one you know that they had the longest video. That obviously he had his knee on the back neck area the longest amount of time. Um, the others are being charged essentially as almost like uh, accessories, um, uh, as like uh, uh, accomplices to the crime. Um, again, I could see this as a negligence standard, uh, uh, under the manslaughter kind of situation, but the fact that there's so little done about showing the intent, um, that's troubling to me. Uh, but yeah, I, I do not see, they will get less, obviously lesser charges, lesser sentences, I'm sure. Um, but they are not going to, uh, I can almost guarantee there will not be any way they will be found not guilty uh, of their charges as well. And so maybe there'll be plea deals and those cases are still pending. I've heard maybe the uh, other right. three are coming up. Uh, you know, I if, if I'm not uh, mistaken, I believe one of the officers, it was like his first week or something. And he was like, like not. Right. He was like a training, in training. Still, he wasn't even officially anything yet. I guess he had his, you know, uniform and his badge and gun and all that. But he was just like, like a newbie. And that was that happened to him in this first few days of work. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, Derek Chauvin wasn't even the officer who sh first showed up at the scene. Um, so, yeah, uh, but, but there's, um, like you said before, uh, there, there was training done to deal with, uh, uh, a defendant who's, res you know, res uh, resisting arrest. Um, uh, Derek Chauvin, I think, went a little extreme. Well, went extreme. Well, it was negligent, no doubt about it. Should not have had his knee on his back that long. Um, but again, to go to proving uh, proving the guilty mind, the intent here. Um, it is, a, I think, a troubling precedent that it's almost like it's uh, th these individuals have to be found guilty. Otherwise, you know, there will be more burning of cities and destruction of property. So uh, to, 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 to close it out with you here, uh, you and I sound like we're close on our on our position, uh, guilty on the lower charge, most likely, but not on the higher charges. Is that what you, what your feeling is? Is that what you're leaning towards? I, I can definitely see the negligence here and that they could prove uh, they acted unreasonably. Uh, I can see that um, to show a. Uh, you know, the culpable mens rea, the, the guilty mind, the intent to cause this damage. I do not see that in this case. Very good. Jeremy, uh, thank you so much for joining us. You're you're always a, a great caller. And uh, thanks for uh, being, uh, you know, uh, available to uh, join us in our new segment. I hope we'll uh, talk to you again thank soon. Thank you for sir. having me. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Jim. All righty. Okay, we're going to take a one-minute break. I hope you enjoyed that discussion about the uh, Derek Chauvin case. 
you know, this isn't a legal show, but when cases like this come up, I, I find it interesting to discuss it. We'll probably, um, you know, do do a show down the road. We've done shows before just talking about policing in general. You know what what really is happening out there? What are the actual statistics of, of what's happening with policing versus what we're seeing in the news? And um, as I said from the beginning, I, I thought Chauvin was guilty uh, of some charge. I wasn't inclined to believe he was guilty of of the higher charge, uh, probably the lower charge. Uh, but uh, you know, everybody has different views on it. Uh, it was unfortunate, though, sort of the the mob surrounding the courthouse. You wonder if that created an environment uh, for a jury that that couldn't have the freedom to to uh, make their decision with, without that pressure. All right, we'll take a one minute break. We'll refire the open when we come back. Our special guest in our guest segment tonight, Dr. Gary Habermas, as we talk about the case for the resurrection of Jesus. Stand by. We'll be right back. 